90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, I'm doing as well as can be expected. How about yourself? I will firmly plant myself in that same boat. <laughs> uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Considering we got on the phone like almost an hour ago and have just been complaining since then <laughs> before we started <laughs> recording. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. I try to stay positive, but sometimes you just got to, you know... <sighs> well, one day, I don't remember which day, it was between our last recording session and this one, I woke up and I just said, this is a strange day. And my wife's like, what are you talking about? And I said, I don't know. I said, but I know this is going to be a strange... And it was one of the strangest days in my recent memory. Oh my Of just gosh. random things happening. <laughs> mostly not great things. Uh, yeah, it's been an interesting last week. What is that? Alexander's no good, very bad, whatever day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it was to the point where I walked into the door, or walked in, probably walked into the door, really. Uh, walked in at uh, you know 6.30 that evening. And I was like, can we just go to sleep so it's over? Like, <laughs> I, I don't want this day to keep going. <laughs> oh, man. I feel that hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. I, I couldn't bear to even face my dumb classroom that I teach in that's not a classroom. And I just canceled one of my classes this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I can't do this. I'll record this for you over Zoom. See you guys later. <laughs> I have to yell. I mean, I'm already obviously super loud. So teaching with a mask on isn't that big a deal. But I'm in these cavernous spaces now. And with this dumb classroom that has, like, beams everywhere, yeah, it was more than my, more than I could take. <laughs> Indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was doing metamorphic rocks, which I'm not excited about anyway, so I was like, nope, I'm literally going to phone this in. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, yeah. we'll try to uh, turn it around and talk about something that you do get excited about this week. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Um, yeah, I got asked to, we have a new graduate seminar. Did you guys have this at Penn State, new graduate student seminar? Uh, yeah, we called it, oh, it's like, yeah, I can't remember. They didn't call it orientation. It had a special name, but yeah, every new grad student was required to take it and it was sort of an orientation. Okay. Well, we, we've started that. Um, and I think it's really cool. I mean, I think, I think it's really neat. Um, and so we have this new grad seminar and we get asked, you know, to teach for it, it you know, just whatever we want to talk about. And so I was like, I'm going to do a talk on the origins of the magnetic field. Cause I talk about PMAG all the time, obviously, but to talk about like the geodynamo, man, let me tell you, number one, it's been a long time since I've put together an entire talk from scratch, right? <laughs> I feel like I've been teaching long enough that I have a slew of material to begin with. Um, but this was completely from scratch, and I have about, wait, let me check. I don't want to hyperbole. 15, 16. I have 16 tabs open to papers I want to read <laughs> based on... <laughs> Wow. This talk that I put together. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> All right. So the, the origins and your title, I'm intrigued, is Origins and Uses <laughs> of Earth's Magnetic Field. So I just thought that was funny because I put a picture of Magneto <laughs> next to it. <laughs> and I just like let it hang up there. And um, as we were discussing before the show... Obviously, we're old now. Uh, I did not put an Ian McClellan Magneto picture up. I put a Magneto from the comic book picture up. <sighs> and it was a disappointing rate of return on my investment in making this slide. <laughs> zero? It wasn't zero. One kid eventually snapped his fingers and said, oh, that's that that magnet dude. <laughs> okay, so 0 0.1. <laughs> 
I gave him his participation point, like, right then and there. I was like, okay. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, so, the yeah. geodynamo, it's what, it's what makes our magnetic field. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's pretty intimately tied to the fact that we're structured in a pretty unique way compared to a lot of the other rocky planets. So, when I... So, my... I. I put up the structure of the earth, right? And it's so interesting to me when either we draw this or you're actually like trying to rip off pictures from the internet about how we always draw the core tiny, right? And then it always feels like most of the earth is mantle and that's not at all what it is. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, the mantle's the thickest part. Not really, though, if you do inner and outer core together. Okay, yes. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, you see lots of drawings where it's just like this tiny core and then mostly mantle and then crust. And then when I was looking at this, I found a paper from a couple of years ago that talked about the inner, inner core. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't go down that rabbit hole, and maybe we'll talk no. about it later. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to start with the structure of the earth because that's where, you know, we get this geodynamo. And I, I get the question every year when we go over this in any in intro class is, okay, well, why is the outer core liquid metal and the inner core solid metal? And to tell you the truth, I really never thought about it for a while. Um, and then it's, it's because the pressure, right? The extreme pressure changes the freezing temperature of the 85% iron that is the core and therefore solid inner core, liquidy outer core. But that interface is what becomes important when we're talking about geodynamo. It, it is very odd to think of the pressure melting point of iron. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes it is. <laughs> but yes, that's, that's what we're talking about here. And so this inner core is about 1,600 miles in diameter, or that's 2,600 kilometers for those of you anywhere but where we are. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, exactly. And it has the, I think, I couldn't find this again. I must have closed it somewhere. Something said that like, it has the volume of the moon is like the inner core. Or the hmm. outer, the outer core. Sorry, the outer core. The material is the same volume as is in the moon, but I can't substantiate that. That was just a factoid that stuck on me. Um, but it is at that. So eighty-five percent pure iron is what the core is made of. Um, even though there's a lot of new stuff that talks about how much water could be at the core, like a whole bunch in some kind of weird form, right? Um, but that. Inner core, outer core, right where that comes together. This strength of the magnetic field there is 50 times stronger than at the surface. And in case you don't know, we measure that now in Teslas, right? So it ranges from 30 millitesslas to 60 millitesslas on Earth's surface. Yes, and we're generally talking, you know... Well, okay, I would generally talk about it in nanoteslas, but millitesla makes it smaller numbers. Surely. Yes, that is true. I guess geophysicists generally do it in large amount of numerical places of nanoteslas. <laughs> I mean, 70,000 nanoteslas is not much different than 70. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, so we'd be talking not quite two orders of magnitude, but, but close. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, going to that boundary and it's because that boundary is what is generating the magnetic field to start with right exactly um i just did a little bit of background on this but i thought that maybe you would even know more background about these old dudes creating dynamos in general oh yeah <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> go for it <laughs> well so i mean a, a dynamo really is just a a generator mm-hmm uh and it could be in any, you know, the geodynamo specifies that this is a geologically driven dynamo. Correct, yes. Uh, but there are all kinds of these, uh, you see them at science museums all the time, where, you know, you crank, and there's this big disc that spins, and then you get uh, arcs jumping between two big brass balls that are up on a stand. Mm-hmm, yes. Yeah, so that's a dynamo, and there's a bunch of different kinds of those. Um but, of course, like everything to do with magnetics and current flow, this 
generally goes back to Faraday. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so Joseph Henry worked with, like, putting a wire around a nail, right? And you can generate this electrical current. But then, yeah, Faraday's the one who coined the term dynamo, right? And he made that Faraday disc, which was that spinning disc in between a horseshoe magnet and, you know, created that magnetic field through the disc because of that, right? So Faraday's responsible for all this stuff. Right, and these are things that, you know, you can recreate. Uh, the one that you normally see at the science museums and one that would be a really fun build for somebody is called a Wimshurst machine. Oh, yeah, I was, um, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these work on the principle of we have something conductive that's spinning or being moved through a magnetic field. Mm-hmm. All right, so now you think about the Earth. We've got something that can hold a, well, got to be careful with my terminology. We have something that's <laughs> permeable, uh-huh. uh, like a ball of iron. Yes. And then we also have something that's moving around it that's conductive, like liquid iron. Mm-hmm. So really what we've built is a very large 3D Faraday disk at a planet scale. Ah. This is something that, you know, Slarty Bartfast may have worked on <laughs> at some point. Exactly. Looking at his Wimhurst machine on his desk, right? Um, right. <laughs> right. So it's basically Earth's rotation and convection conduction in that inner core that couple together to create our geodynamo, right? Um, and so that becomes very important, but... Why are we the only one? <laughs> yeah, so we know that other rocky planets, some don't have a highly differentiated structure like we do. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, but there are others with metallic cores. So, you know, Mercury, Venus, the moon might have a core, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Had, we're not, we're not really sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mars. Yep. And we know Mars doesn't really have any appreciable magnetic field mm-hmm. now. Yep, exactly. And Venus doesn't have any, really. Um, And so you have to think about what makes us special little snowflake that we are. (laughs) And a lot of it comes down to what we were just talking about. You have to have that rotating part. And that's sort of where Venus falls short, right? Because what Venus's rotation is like 243 Earth days or something like that. That's their rotation rate. Isn't a year on Venus longer than a day? I believe so, yeah. Okay, I didn't know that off the top of my head, but it's close. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so Venus doesn't rotate. So even if I had iron in there, it's just sitting there. So when you don't have that movement, you can't generate the dynamo. And Mars might have just, you know, crusted over, which is interesting because you think, where is our dynamo headed, right? Is that what's going to happen? (laughs) Right, I mean, we do sort of consider that Mars was probably Earth-like in its distant past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so to think about why it doesn't, and obviously Mercury, poor guy, he's done for, right? <laughs> Tidally locked to the sun, nothing's going on there anymore. Um, some, n- I say new, it's like last four years. A lot of stuff has come out about when did our dynamo begin and why is it so strong? And why is it still, like, not showing any signs of slowing down? And this is really interesting, I thought, because it has to do with that differentiation that gave us the core mantle crust in the first place. And this is some chemistry. We all know how I feel about that. Um, (laughs) But early on in our history, right, how we got the moon was we got smashed by this Mars-sized object, which I love how everybody says that. What's its name? Isn't it like Thea or something that we all that we called it? I did not know that it had been named. Yes, one of our ex students told us that told me that the other day. <laughs> um, so when we got hit really early on in our history by this Mars-sized object, we had already begun differentiating. Right, the iron's going to sink really fast. The silicates are going to stay at the top. 
and the magnesium, which is what a lot of the mantle is made of, was in the middle. We get smashed by this object, and it sort of remixed us. And by remixing us, it's put magnesium down with the iron, and there were some chemical reactions that got the dynamo going super early because of that like addition of magnesium and the addition of heat from the impact as well. So really it's the fact that we're spinning relatively fast and that we had a eventful bombardment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically. Yeah. I mean, because all of the rocky planets were getting heavily bombarded at this time, right? We call it, there's an early and a late heavy bombardment, but we, right. cause we got bammed by that huge piece. Um, they think that that's why our dynamo started early, you know, earlier than three and a half billion years ago and was up to full strength or maybe even fuller strength than it is now very early on. And we got sustained by that heat generated from that impact and then the rest of the late bombardment. Well, I also don't know what role in terms of having lots of radioactive elements brought in during that's playing for us compared to other planets as well. Yes. Um, and I don't think we really know that at all because we, we don't have much geochemistry on a lot of those surfaces. Correct. Uh, I did read a little bit about that, and the thought is, the mo- the modeling of it is that that's not enough. Whatever. <laughs> all right. Yeah, that radioactive heating isn't enough, even though it's what keeps us hot. It's not. It wasn't enough to do that. So... I thought that was interesting. And I don't know. Surely this has been done. This is nothing I've ever investigated. Like, what did that do to our rotation rate? Did it make us go faster? We, we can definitely see changes in rotation rate from very large, you know, even seismic events. Yeah. So I'm sure that it had some effect. And so maybe if it was a glancing blow and made us rotate faster, that would kickstart the dynamo even quicker. I don't know. That's just, that's just me talking out loud. That is nothing I looked into. So somebody may have already solved that, which would be great. <laughs> well, so either way, we've got this spinning motion, which means we're going to have all kinds of fun fluid dynamics because we've got a liquid, a solid interface. We've got this liquid plastic interface or gradient, really. So we're going to set up all kinds of pressure-driven flow structures. Yeah. I found this guy's website. He's way smarter than me. And he had the coolest model pictures. Like, his website was just like, very succinctly like here's who i am here's some figures from my papers of what i've done and they're pretty sweet (laughs) right right do you love it oh oh yes um (laughs) this reminds me of looking at a very strangely scaled hemispheric map of the atmosphere completely it reminds me of the those globes that you can spin, and they've got the weird oozy glue stuff, glittery stuff in it. Yeah. You know, and you just start spinning it faster and faster, and this is exactly what it looks like. Or this looks like Jupiter's atmosphere, this picture, um, that's actually contours of axial vorticity. I love it Yay, so vorticity. much. I know. I know. And so I wrote um, on the board, I wrote quasi-geostrophic and talked about it, and I said, I'm sorry, I'll only say it a couple of times. So QG theory, those of you with a meteorology background or quasi-geostrophic theory, will know that it is an absolutely essential to flow forecasting equation uh, that is quite complicated. (laughs) I remember having to turn my notebook sideways to write the equation, and I thought, who am I? (laughs) Yes. So you, you take geostrophic theory... Uh, which is saying that you've got balances, let's say, between a pressure gradient force and a Coriolis force. Okay, yeah. And you say, well, that's that's great in most cases, but now we want to start capturing these higher order effects, so we're going to go to quasi-geostrophic. Mm-hmm. And this is geostrophic-ish, but we kick out some of the assumptions that we were making before, 
And now is where you're starting to do things like allow or graphic effects and models and that sort of thing. Right. So all the important things that actually run the weather. Right. Mm-hmm. If you're not on a spherical Earth with no topography, you need quasi-geostrophic theory. <clears throat> and a stiff drink, because that <laughs> that was a hard homework set. <laughs> and remember, we've talked about this before, that the contrast, uh, the physical property contrast between like the inner core and the outer core is outrageous. Also yes. between the outer core and the mantle. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're really seeing something that is weather, but in liquid iron. Exactly. And so, so this is what I got super, I nerded out on this one so much. Um, because I said, despite the fact it's this red, blue, you know, color gradient or whatever, I'm like, what do you notice about this picture? And so, you know, we can put a link to this in the show notes if you want to go to that picture now. Um, and it, they're all these couplets, right? And so I'm like, think about, you know, what fluid dynamics is. I know you're a geologist, so calm down, <laughs> is what I had to say in class. <laughs> um, but I was like, you know, look at these couplets. And I'm like, this is, I mean, that's a vorticity. And I talked about horizontal vorticity and tornadoes being, you know, vertical vorticity or whatever. And I was like, you get these opposing forces, like, in the weather, too, You know, some tornadoes are cyclonic mostly, right? And the other ones, sometimes you get an anti-cyclonic tornado. And they were like, what? I've never thought about that. I was like, yeah. I mean, these are, it's the same physics, right? In liquid iron or in springtime in Oklahoma. (laughs) Right. Just, you know, the the Reynolds number is a little different. Uh, A little different. (laughs) So I was really proud of them because they did ask. They're like, but what kind of time scale differences are we talking about? And I was like, that is good for you. That's an excellent question. Just like the weather changes, the magnetic field changes too. Mm -hmm. Yes, it does. And it's all because of dynamics. Exactly. Um, So what I thought was interesting, because, I mean, we just have to model this stuff, right? Like we can't see inside our Earth. Um, And so... Those are the things that you're changing in these models to figure out the dynamics of the field. And it's using Ekman numbers and Prandtl numbers, right? And so if you've done fluid dynamics, that should sound fairly familiar. Talking about the the Ekman numbers, the, you know, ratio of viscous to Coriolis forces. Um, And then the Prandtl number is another dimensionist number that talks about Um, momentum and thermal diffusivity. So basically, you know, is it viscous or Coriolis? And then the Prandtl number, is it conduction or convection? And I thought it was very interesting because the, the things when you tweak those, so that's what you have to tweak because composition, while it does play a big part of it, especially in the convection part, I mean, it's mostly iron. So that's not a huge a huge thing. Um, you have low single digit percents to tweak. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I thought it was really interesting. This It's not as surprising that the Coriolis force sort of dominates this, right? But I thought it was no. interesting that conductivity dominates, not convection, when you're talking about flow in the outer core. Well, yeah, because air is a pretty good insulator thermally, mm-hmm. but iron is not. Not. Not <laughs> at all. Yeah, because... I feel like that we say that a lot, right? And we talk about mantle convection all the time. And the students, before I started to explain that, you know, I said, how are you doing this? And they're like, convection in the inner or in the outer core. And it's like, no, actually it's not. Yeah, mostly conduction. I mean, there is convection. Yes, yes, But the majority is. of the heat transfer is not taking place by that method. Correct. It's just by conduction, Yes. Which, so, I mean, makes sense, but was also surprising because I feel like that's the stock answer you get, confection in the outer core. Right. Yeah. So we know that, you know, like I said, weather changes, but the magnetic field, you know, one of the things that I've, I've told several people and they didn't realize this was, that, you know, every now and then they have to go repaint numbers on the end of runways because, you know, runway 3-4 is your landing at, a heading of 34 degrees magnetic compass. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. 
as the pole moves around, somebody has to go out there with their bucket of black paint and their bucket of white paint and change the runway number to runway 35. <laughs> yeah. Um, and not, you know. So you have, it's not static in direction or in location. <laughs> so what good right. is it? <laughs> well, and the location is, you know, sort of, we can observe that in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the changes in direction, in other words, the North Pole becoming the, the North Magnetic Pole becoming the South Geographic Pole, uh, we probably won't get to see that in our lifetime. We I hope mean... we don't get to see that in our lifetime. <laughs> yeah, I love it because everyone was asking, aren't we overdue for this? And I was like, we're not like BBC documentary overdue for it. <laughs> And it's also not like a full rip nine along the Cascadian subduction zone. We're overdue for that. <laughs> like that's probably going to happen before we have a magnetic Right. Reversal. I mean, and we're overdue in the sense that, you know, in our plus or minus tens of thousands of years understanding of how often this happens. Yeah. Yes. Sure. <laughs> Correct. I um, don't lose sleep over that. Oh, gosh, I do. Especially when I camped along the, the ocean up there. <laughs> Oh, no, I'm talking about magnetic reversal. Oh, yes. Okay, yes. I don't lose sleep over this either. Um, I will tell the story, which is slightly embarrassing, and I'm sure I told it on here before because I don't really get embarrassed. Uh, (laughs) I had a student, one of my students, texted me super early in the morning, and I get up and I see it, and it says, oh, my gosh, I just saw online that the magnetic field has shifted. And I was like, what? And so I grabbed my compass because it's beside my bed. (laughs) (laughs) And I literally ran outside (laughs) to see. And it didn't happen. But to her, in her defense, the actual article did say Earth's magnetic field has shifted. But it was just talking about the the large jump that it made more towards Siberia in in the last year, it's moved around a lot more than it was, you know, the, it was predicted to. That's all it meant. Right. So it, it wanders around over years time scale, but yeah, sometimes it has these kind of sudden jerky movements. Right. And so they're called magnetic jerks, which I think is really funny because I know a lot of magnetic jerks, but, um, <laughs> So before before we get into the, the weird part of it, this wandering has a name, and we call it secular variation. And the idea of this is really important to, especially to paleomagnetism, but to this hypothesis that we call the geocentric axial dipole hypothesis, or the GAD hypothesis. And you have this magnetic north and south pole that do not align with our rotational pole, right? But not only does it not align, it wanders around the rotational pole. And the timescales on this are, I mean, it depends, right? There was actually a popular science article about the magnetic field taking like a 10,000 kilometer jog when it shouldn't have. But in general... You can average about, on about the scale of five to 10,000 years, you can average out that secular variation and then just say, oh, yeah, it's statistically the magnetic pole is the rotational pole. Right. Which... And in some cases, that's good enough. And in, yes. in some, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. It depends on what you're doing. Um, and some people work in the magnetic realm that only deals with secular variation. If you're talking about archaeology and you're using magnetics on different, like, archaeological finds, you know, you need to know what secular variation is. You can't just assume it doesn't exist because that angle between the rotational pole and the magnetic pole can be pretty severe. And right now it is um, because the magnetic magnetic poles taking one of its little magnetic jerks um as we speak but why it does that is 
really interesting. And it comes down to those differences in the core. So maybe that 15% that's not exactly all pure iron. And you can get concentrations of areas that are pure iron or areas that aren't. And the shifting of those blobs in the spinning earth is what can create these weird imbalances in the field, basically. Right. So if we wanted to put the the big word on it, it's heterogeneity. Yes. (laughs) In the 85% homogeneous body. Right. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And the modeled picture of that heterogeneity is the creepiest thing ever. (laughs) It's not geoid creepy, but it's like Cthulhu creepy, I think. (laughs) It's, it's, blobby iso contours yep (laughs) Mm -hmm. with lots of tentacles (laughs) but it's really cool to me to think that like those small seemingly small they're not small differences you know can be perceived out here at the surface like you can't just make this sweeping declaration of homogeneity in the core because it does have a big difference and like i said over ten thousand plus years Yes, you can average out secular variation, but you still need to remember it. And there are times when secular variation is extremely variable, and you need to know when those times are, too. Because when you're trying to recreate where your continents were based on paleomagnetism, if it's a time of you know extreme secular variation, then you need to make corrections for that. Right. Yeah, so... That's what could, uh, that's the geocentric axial dipole hypothesis where we say, meh, whatever, but know that this is happening and it's actually kind of interesting um, how different that is. And 90% of Earth's magnetic field can be described by that dipole, but there is that weird 10% that can throw everything off, right? And, you know, it's like, I would say most folks probably never worry about that 10%. Yes, correct. Uh, and then you have the discussion that I had a few years ago of, okay, so are our weather models running with geographic north or magnetic north? <laughs> okay, okay, so what about the data that we're pulling in to initialize the models? Is Are the wind vanes aligned to geographic north or magnetic north or a mix? <laughs> and if it's magnetic north, when were they last aligned to magnetic north? Yep. And then that 10% starts getting really important. Oh, gosh. Magnetism. You say paleomagnetism is all about, you know, compounding errors, but it's basically all magnetism. And it's so temporarily important to make the correct, the corrections. I mean, I have had to set my, so on a, on a Brunton pocket transit, right? You, you set the magnetic declination. Mm Mm-hmm where you're mapping so that you get true north mm-hmm. not magnetic north and i have had the experience of going back to the same field area now <laughs> and having to change uh-huh. change that because yep. we've had enough wander exactly when i was an undergrad it was like four and a half degrees in oklahoma was the declination correction and now it's only 3.8 nothing makes you feel old like <laughs> <laughs> Like the, the direction of magnetic north changing under your feet. Uh, yes. Or uh, what's the, the zero declination word has a really cool name. Isn't it the agonic? Is that what it's called? Yes. So the agonic, which is where you have this line of deviation of zero from magnetic north. Um, yeah, it used to be in like Illinois and now it's in Iowa. So that made me feel old too. <laughs> Right. (laughs) (laughs) And then no one cares when you say, man, how about that agonic wandering? (laughs) Right. (laughs) I really appreciate you letting me nerd out on this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, So secular variation we can see. Sometimes there are scientific articles about it. But sometimes it reverses direction, which is a whole different thing. And I think everyone knows that this happens. But I also think that most people believe that it does it with regularity. Which, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come against that and say, that's true. 
Okay. That it does it with, oh gosh, what's the word? That it, periodicity. <laughs> I, I, I hold my statement. <laughs> it does switch and it doesn't do it a lot, but it doesn't do it in a, in a predictable time period. Mm. Ish. Really? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we have recorded. This is, you know, what proved the plate tectonic hypothesis, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So what what this, helped prove it, yes. Right. And so, so, yes, the poles switch with some regularity. Yeah. Like, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't had intervals where it's been six times its normal length. Well, in one polarity, it has, but over a hundred million years ago. Right. Okay. So it does happen. It does not happen with the regularity in terms of human relatable years. Yes. That late night documentaries would lead you to believe. Yes, exactly. Um, we do have things in the magnetic record that are what we call supercrons. So a cron is like a, right now we're in normal polarity. This is how we define it. Normal polarity, and we call it, in the northern hemisphere, the magnetic direction is down. So the magnetic field lines are coming down into the northern geographic pole. So normal and down and positive all mean the same thing when we talk about the magnetic field right now. And so if it were to flip, it would be reversed, up, negative. And those couplets of reversed and normal are what we call crons. And we get those, just like John said, from mapping the seafloor. Because as seafloor spreading happens, you have a continuous record of these igneous rocks that are cooling and trapping Earth's magnetic field in it as they cool down through the Curie temperature. Right. And I mean, okay, so there have been some longer periods. Yes. So because we have seafloor that is Jurassic and younger, we have a very high fidelity record of this. And so something happened in the Cretaceous, and it's just called the Cretaceous Supercron. And a supercron is a time when the field stayed the same, whether it was normal or reversed, for 10 million years or longer. And we've had a few of these. Um, so the Cretaceous is one that we know of because we've got this really great seafloor spreading record. Seafloor spreading was also very high in the Cretaceous. It was a really high rate of seafloor spreading. So that's kind of interesting to compare those two things. Not magnetic reversals, really high mantle activity. Um, and then we probably have one also in the Permian. And so that's called the Cayman Supercron. But we don't have seafloor that's as old as the Permian. So trying to find a complete Permian archive of deposition, you know, that Cayman Supercron is held up so far. But we're starting to find that maybe the poles have taken what we call excursions. So little short flips back and forth. Um, during that Kiamen. So that one's still a little bit more up in the air than the Cretaceous Supercron. Right. But this is something that we don't really know. You know, it's unlikely that you wake up one morning and the poles have flipped. Correct. It is unlikely. Um, you may have seen these pictures, if you wanted to search this, of this Glatzmeyer-Roberts model. It's this, it's the orange and blue spaghetti all twisted together that approximate field lines. Well, and one of the most famous sets of figures in this field. Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, and so in the early 90s, they did these computer models of the dipole. And they ran this, it's a fluid dynamic model, right? They run it and to try to figure out the, why it flips, right? And on what timescales. And it stayed stable for the equivalent of 36,000 years. And then it began to reverse. And it's awesome. It just looks like this ridiculous plate of spaghetti. But just like when you're talking about the vorticity couplets in the outer core, 
you know, each one of these, as it begins to reverse, it basically creates like quadrupoles and octopoles all over the world, which is creepy to think about. (laughs) Yep. So navigation would be doomed. Uh Uh-huh. 100%. And the equivalent, it took the equivalent of like 500-ish years for it to happen. So, yeah, it's unlikely that one day it will completely flip. We are, something we haven't talked about it because it's its own, it's its own show, is the intensity of the magnetic field. And we are going down, although the rate that we're decreasing in intensity is not itself accelerating. It was actually going down faster, like in the 1980s than it is now. So we don't know if the decrease in intensity means we're heading into a reversal, although a lot of people have said that. Right, but that's, I'm going to go as far as saying purely anecdotal. Uh, correct, yes. Yeah, I think so too. Um, it's really hard, and there's only a few people that do this, to look at paleo intensity of the ancient magnetic field. So that thing is, that's a hard thing to do. Right. Yeah. But a reversal is likely super messy. It probably takes a long time. Um, And like I said, we have evidence of these little things called excursions where, like, somewhere within that reversal, while it's reversing, like, it flips for, you know, a long time and stays there and then flips back really quick and all kinds of these evidences. Even though this stuff was done in the 90s, these are still the most famous and widely cited ideas about what the actual dynamics of a reversal say. Right. And we won't really know much until we get high resolution, temporal resolution data on one. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's not going to happen probably in our lifetime. Maybe not while folk, while, while while folks are here, you know? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, exactly. Um, And then it would be multi-generational at at best, probably. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've done our best. We've got pretty good. How far back does our, does our record of magnetic intensity go? Like our, like a high fidelity record of the magnetic field. I don't know how far back the intensity record goes. Certainly further than the more like, you know, the seafloor record. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. That's an interesting thing. We should put that in the future show notes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, find somebody who does that. Oh, no, I know who it is. I'll just have to get him on here. (laughs) So, (laughs) but with with that, uh, I don't know, are you ready to to talk about something a little bit different, but uh, Um, in a similar vein? If the similar vein is how models are still unclear and are dumb, yeah, let's talk about it. (laughs) All right. So it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Hey, I will say that I was much more ready to talk about this paper last week um, instead of the one that we did talk about, because this is, how did, I don't know, go ahead. (laughs) All right, so potential short-term earthquake forecasting by farm animal monitoring by Wachelski et al. This has been done so many times, right? Like, can we watch animals and see if there's an earthquake? And again, the answer's like, uh, maybe? <laughs> um, well, so there have been other studies. This one was more rigorous in the fact that they strapped accelerometers to animals. <laughs> I've totally done that to my dog. <laughs> and a lot of times, you know, there's an earthquake and you go interview somebody. And of course their animal was acting weird. Uh, yeah. Or... The earthquake has already occurred. Mm-hmm. Not the other times that their animal acted weird and nothing happened. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so with this, they said, well, we're going to go where there's a large earthquake and there are likely to be aftershocks and monitor animals to see if they can predict the aftershocks. Mm-hmm. And they sort of did. Sort of. There's a line drawn through some points. <gasps> Okay, so what I did think was interesting about this was the fact that they not only monitored just like animals hanging out in the field, but they monitored animals that were not trapped, but kept inside 
somewhere. So they're inside their enclosure, their pen in their stable. Um, and so that's what they say is that these stabled animals freaked out way more than the animals in the pasture did. Right. And I'm going to say, sure, I think it's feasible that animals can give us Okay, maybe not can give. I think it's feasible that animals know something is going to happen. Yes, I have some anecdotal evidence of that. I don't think that it is feasible for the almost 24 hours. Yeah. That's claimed sometimes. Mhm. Also, I don't think it's differentiable enough from the other things that animals sense to ever really be useful. That's probably the key takeaway. Yeah. I mean, so, okay, monitor a bunch of animals in Oklahoma and tell me whether they're acting weird because a thunderstorm's coming and earthquakes about to happen or, you know, it's mating season. Yep. Correct. Tell me which one of those it is. (laughs) You can't. Um, (laughs) so I will say when we had the big Prague earthquake, um, my dogs, I was at home because my son was sick. And my dogs had been barking, and they're not barkers. Like, they don't generally bark. And I'd put them outside, and they were acting. And again, you said this is after the fact, but I do remember that I had gone to, like, hush them up at least three times in 20 minutes. And this is not how those dogs act. And they wouldn't come inside, which is also not like them because they were lazy, lazy lumps. (laughs) And they just ran around in the backyard barking. And then we had a big earthquake. And how how far in advance was that? It was about 20 minutes. Yeah. That, to me, is within the realm of feasibility. Yeah. It's not like they'd been acting weird for, you know, an hour or more. Right. Whereas, you know, in this paper, let's see, we've got a figure here of how far the animal was from the earthquake uh, versus the anticipation time. And they're claiming uh, up to around 15 hours if you're on top of it, and the minimum being five hours if you're very far away. Yeah, no way. Right. No way. Um, Now, I think there are some potentials in that uh, we we know that there's going to be some seismic pre-slip, and the animals might be more attuned to be able to feel that. Though... You have to have pretty good seismometers. I mean, we didn't even know that existed long, long ago. So, right, yeah. I don't know that I believe that animals are as good as a brand new seismometer. That's not just because you sell them, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, there's some ideas about the electrical effects that happen on faults, uh, creating uh, more heavily ionized air. Mm-hmm. There's some interesting, if somewhat anecdotal, information around that as well. But in this study, they didn't really try to determine why. They just tried to determine if. It was more, um, I mean, it's more quantitative than, than other talk about this. So, I mean, at least they're trying to quantify this supposed phenomenon. Right. And I will give them that. This is more measurements, numerical measurements, than have ever been taken. Mm-hmm. The... So figure five, for example, mm-hmm. I struggle to see how you can draw a line through that data. Uh, anybody can draw a line through anything, man. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And the fact that there's a shaded area of 95% confidence that encapsulates <laughs> low single-digit percents of the data, I do not understand. Yeah. That's true. So there is data collected, or there are data collected, rather. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's also a write-up of this in EOS. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it even said that after they collected the data, they basically written it off. Yeah. And then decided that they could see some of these trends in it. Um, but they said examining the data was like watching the financial market for signs of impending trouble. (laughs) Yeah. And potentially works about as well. Yep, exactly. Um, now they did talk to some different USGS folks. Uh, so they talked to, to Sue Huff, Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, she said, yeah, it's an old idea that animals can sense earthquakes and there's been some studies on it, but she also agreed that there's not really overwhelming evidence here. Right. But also interesting. So And yeah, know. and somebody else said, you know, I don't really see a pattern, but it's cool that someone is trying to quantify this. And right. I 100% agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, but this is also a great example of how a study that said there might be something here, maybe if you squint and look at the graph sideways, gets <laughs> turned into a press release that says animals predict earthquakes. Yes, it I think that's the biggest takeaway from this. Just like magnetic field shifts is like a normal thing that the magnetic field always does. Got turned into me running outside and freaking out. Clickbait EOS. Ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you've got evidence or acceleration logs from your animals and have correlated them to meteorological, geological, or any other phenomena... (laughs) We would love to see that data in your detailed analysis. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, send us your dog speed to treat shaking ratio at show. Don't panic geocast.com. Uh, you can send those graphs on Twitter. We are at don't panic geo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And we're on the Slack channel at don't panic geo underneath the software underground. So come see us there. As always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. If you would like to support us there, you may do so. Patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And even though structural engineers call for removal of a critical load-bearing beam <laughs> underneath our studio. Until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding